This podcast is brought to you by Vinzero. Vinzero pioneers solutions and services to the AEC and manufacturing industries to support net zero targets. Visit vinzero.com to learn more about how organisations design, build and solve through digitalisation. From Vinzero to you, welcome to our Think Future podcast series. Each week we'll share conversations with industry leaders from around the world to find out how they're thinking future. Subscribe to Vinzero Think Future for access to more episodes, interviews and profiles. Katrina Brady is the Director of Strategy and Development at the World Green Building Council, where she is focused on strategic development and implementation of new, global and regional projects and programs for their network. In this role, Katrina manages World Green Building Council's global program on resources and circularity in the built environment, dedicated to enhancing resource efficiency and catalyzing the circular economy within the building and construction sector. Off the back of their recently released Circularity Playbook for the Built Environment, Katrina joins us today to share her insights into what's next for the World Green Building Council. Welcome to the program, Katrina. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Katrina, you've just returned from the World Circular Economy Forum in Helsinki, and we're two months out of the release of your Circularity Playbook for the Built Environment. What were the headlines from Helsinki? Well, first of all, it was just such a pleasure to be at a global circular economy conference where built environment was such a major focus because obviously we were there talking about fashion, textiles, agriculture, waste, you name it. So fantastic to see cities, communities and buildings being introduced and recognised as one of the most urgent sectors that we need to think about in terms of material and resource consumption and waste and therefore being an opportunity for the circular economy. The Circular Built Environment Playbook that you mentioned, yes, we launched that at the end of May. The take-up of that has been really, really fantastic. And for anybody listening today who's not had a chance to check it out, if you are in the built environment space and you're looking for something that really simply explains all of these different concepts of the circular economy, everything from materials to design strategies to how it links with regeneration of nature to how you create a business case for it. We've tried hard to take all of that information and put it down in a place that it's really easy for people to access and understand and have all of this information together in a place. So obviously we were talking about that a lot when we were at the forum in Helsinki. The take up of that report has been excellent and a huge thanks to yourself and the Vinzero team for your support in creating that and disseminating that. And I think that the really positive take up in terms of social media engagement and readership and press, it shows that people are interested or curious, I guess, about the circular economy. And I think it really shows this gap in the market where people recognize this as an area of sustainability they need to get to grips with, but don't quite know what to do yet. So that's one of the big lessons for me as we are on the other side of the World Circular Economy Forum, that there is this interest in the built environment. We're seeing it in our own deliverables. And there's a real opportunity here for us to equip people with the information they need to make tangible action. And I think probably we all know that it's our consumption or overconsumption of materials for the built environment that is a real critical factor for driving circularity. Absolutely. I mean, it's our consumption of materials, water, um, soil, stuff, everything we use, all all of the different systems around the world that we're over-consuming in every sector. These are the, the critical reasons that we need to employ a circular economy so that we can start living within planetary boundaries because there's simply not enough raw materials for 
8 billion people to live in the way that many of us do. We need to be able to supply in an equitable way that gives everybody the best quality of life without over-consuming. So it is a multi-sector issue. And across the whole world, we're only 7.2% circular overall since the most recent circularity gap report. So it's not just the built environment's problem. We're not shaving just this one sector. However, buildings and infrastructure as a sector, they only cover 2% of the world's surface, but they're using around half of global resources. So in terms of a sector to start with, it's hugely, hugely influential. The opportunity for impact is massive. It certainly is. And so in terms of bringing that vision for circularity to life, what are some of the key challenges for the built environment? Well, I think um, one of the biggest challenges with circularity is that people don't really know what it means. It's quite difficult to, to grasp. And first of all, it's a difficult concept to grasp, but I'm happy to talk through what it means in a second and um, to give a bit of clarity. But there are also lots of different definitions. And in our team at the World Green Building Council, we went through about 35 different definitions as we were preparing this playbook that I was just talking about. We did an analysis and there were a good 20 different themes coming out of all of these different definitions. So really no wonder people are confused. But there are four key principles of the circular economy that are synonymous with all of these different principles and the way it's being talked about across different sectors that are synonymous with how we move from a linear to a circular economy. And just to explain that for a second, when we're talking about a linear economy, the this would be our, our classic business as usual way of using materials, the way we have done for the last few centuries since the Industrial Revolution. We, we want something, we need to take the raw materials for it, we take them, we make them into something, we use that for whatever period of time it's got a functional shelf life or use purpose for, however long that might be, and then at the end when we don't need it anymore, we waste it. We throw it away, it goes to landfill, and all of that useful material and product in it, a lot of it's incredibly valuable, that just is, that's sitting and it's going to waste in landfill the majority of the time. The circular economy, by comparison, yes, we still recognize that we we need certain products, resources for our, our survival, for our, our buildings, our cities. And yes, we're still taking and we're making. But the opportunity here is that we're not necessarily taking virgin resources. We could be taking reused or recycled resources. Then when we use them for something, we want to do that in a way that we're facilitating the reuse of it, that it's easy for it to dismantle. It's easy for you to take the, the ingredients of it, essentially, and then turn it into something else, whether you're talking about a house or a table. And then at the end, the key point, instead of wasting it and th those materials being lost in terms of economic and useful value, it's all about us reusing them, reconstructing them, and keeping them in as useful and extended a lifespan of potential use as possible. So those are really the key principles, whether you're talking about buildings or a pair of jeans or any infrastructure assets that we need to be reducing the amount of material that are being used as a source of it. We need to be optimizing the design of it and designing in a way that we can disassemble it, that we can maintain it and adapt it. And we also need to ensure that we're working in hand with nature, that we're regenerating natural systems, ecosystem surfaces, biodiversity while we're doing it. And that's one of the big co-benefits of us achieving a circular economy that we should be able to tackle the climate change, the emissions, 
the nature, biodiversity, and the resource crisis hand in hand. That's the big dream. So circularity is definitely a much-needed conversation for supply chain partners in that case. Absolutely. There's a huge uh, responsibility and opportunity for supply chain partners. In terms of materials, first of all, as I was mentioning, the, the transition for circularity is going to involve looking at new materials. And there's a lot of really exciting innovation coming out in the materials space in the built environment, whether it's uh, new bio-based materials, and we saw a really fantastic case study in our circularity playbook where there is the world's tallest skyscraper in South Africa that's made out of a material called hempcrete, which, yes, you guessed it's made of hemp, so it's a bio-based material. They've turned it into a skyscraper. It's incredibly exciting and a really, really fantastic case study. So in terms of sourcing materials, we want to be looking a bit different to the status quo, moving away from really high-embodied carbon-heavy materials whether that's at reused alternatives, heavy materials with a recycled component, or some of these newer materials I was talking about. Then in terms of how uh, building or infrastructure assets actually constructed, that has a huge uh, role to play as well. So for the supply chain consideration, we need to be creating materials that don't need to be glued together. They can be, say, screwed together or slotted together. Because if you can slot the components of a house together, you can unslot them. And that means that you can use them again. However, if you've glued something together, first of all, you might have then just attached it together with something with toxic chemicals in it. We don't want that being recycled around a system. We need to be ensuring that our materials are set up for success for circularity, as well as having it all in place in the materials supply chain. We need education and training and skills being uh, given to our construction and our wider supply chain workers so that they know that there is this fundamental difference in terms of these very simple tasks in what it can mean at the end of life of the building and the overall emissions and embodied carbon of the materials that are being used. So let's break it down a little bit more because if we look at the sectors by headline, construction, manufacturing, infrastructure, there there are some similarities and there are some differences. So how do the challenges of circularity differ? And if we start perhaps with the big one, which is construction, comparative to manufacturing and or infrastructure. With construction, there are a couple of key principles in terms of how we can ensure our, our built environment is put together in a way that allows the materials to be treated in a circular way. So part of it is the selection of materials. We'll come into that on manufacturing. Our materials need to be reusable, recyclable, and ideally reused or recycled already. How it's constructed is the other big onus. So Design for disassembly and then construction for disassembly is one of the key elements. And that's disassembly not just at the end of your life span, but also disassembly during a functional use of an asset. So while your house is in operation, unfortunately things break. But if you have constructed a building in a way that it's really difficult to access lots of the systems or services or whatever the infrastructure within your house it is that you might need to be repairing, then that increases massively the, the risk of you damaging and needing to replace lots of the raw materials that are making the very fabric of your building. And if that's your house, that's really inconvenient. It means that you're much more likely to have to do a big renovation rather than being really easily able to repair and replace things. So for things like services, which have a shorter lifespan in, say, commercial buildings, um, or they have a shorter lifespan full stop than the buildings themselves, it's really critical that we construct buildings in a way that it's easy to 
do this maintenance. And it's not a very glamorous side of sustainability, but really the the overall principle of optimizing the the lifespan of, of these resources is the principal one that we're thinking of, and construction's a really key space to be thinking about it. Another key part with construction is making sure that there are no toxic chemicals, which is one of the underlying principles of circularity, that obviously we want to be circulating materials and resources that are good for people and planet. There's no point us having a circular economy if, we're, if we are then extending the lifespan of materials that are toxic. So it's really important that we are aware of that in terms of how materials are treated, how they are constructed together to ensure that we are keeping these materials in a pure and healthy form, that they allow for good indoor environmental quality. And then that makes them the perfect opportunity to be able to be recycled and reused in the future. On manufacturing, it's exactly the same principles that we were just talking about in terms of focusing on reducing the embodied carbon of the materials being selected. Um, So even before we get to material choice phase, when they're being manufactured, we need to ensure we are avoiding embodied carbon in materials. We are prioritizing the restoration of nature. We're trying to reduce the transport emissions from how far away materials are being manufactured from where they're needed. And that's where the big opportunity for, for reuse or recycling comes in. And these principles for manufacturing, I think it sounds certainly rather confusing, but the thing that's exciting is they're exactly the same principles for if it's uh, a table or a pair of jeans or a skyscraper that we're talking about. It's still ultimately about using less, using it in accordance with nature, and considering the full life cycle of these materials and the decisions that you make at the beginning, how are they going to impact the way it's being used and the overall carbon emissions and resource use of what this eventually ends up being. So it's really a new era in the sustainability conversation, circularity. I think people certainly think of circularity as a new era for this sustainability world, but realistically, we've had a circular economy for millennia, for many, many generations. And there are parts of the world where you look around and people are living perfectly in accordance with nature. They're not bypassing planetary boundaries at all, but... It is where many of us are in the Western world and developed world that we have started living beyond those planetary boundaries. And it's us that need to be reminded that, yes, we're calling it circular economy. It sounds like a fancy name, but I like to think of it as it's probably the way that our grandparents and our great-grandparents lived. And it's the way that humans have lived in accordance with the planet for generations. We just need to get back to that. But in terms of the sustainability movement generally, yes, there is a real recognition that The conversation has moved on in the decades that we've been talking about green buildings. Obviously, at first, people were focused almost entirely on operational carbon, on energy efficiency. And we use the terms green buildings really synonymously with the idea of decarbonization of buildings while they're in use. However, as time has gone on, as as this conversation has matured, as the market for ESG and reporting has really led to a widespread engagement with sustainability, We are seeing this much more systemic approach to sustainability, and that's incredibly important and exciting because, yes, we have to look at energy efficiency. It's the low-hanging fruit, really, of tackling emissions, but operational carbon is only part of the problem. Whole life cycle carbon, embodied carbon, the emissions of your building from just the beginning of its inception all the way to the end of the life, they're still emissions. They're still sitting in the atmosphere. It doesn't matter what stage of the life cycle it came from. 
but that emissions piece also must become complemented with the resource piece, with ensuring that we live in alignment with the water cycle, with the soil and the chemical cycle, with biodiversity, with the other flora and fauna that share the surface of the planet with us. And that brings me onto the social piece as well, which I think is a real area of increasing awareness at the moment, the S in ESG. It's a really fundamental part of the circular economy as well, the social piece, ensuring that a circular economy leaves no one behind. It's part and parcel of a just transition. But the health piece, the conversation about equity, justice, and social value, these are also really new and burgeoning areas of the sustainability movement. So I can really understand that if you are just getting to grips with sustainability as a conversation, it's very confusing that there are all of a sudden all of these different wider topics. I think the message is that all of these areas, these are all part of what sustainable development has to look like. And there is a reason that there are 17 sustainable development goals. It would be, yes, a lot easier if there were three or four. It'd be much easier for us to talk about. But sustainability has to encompass all of these areas. Emissions, resources, nature, people, economy, all of that's got to work together and a circular economy has elements of bringing all of those areas in. So yes, although it definitely seems like the new topic on the sustainability block at the moment, I like to think of it as potentially our most ancient principle and one that's really embedded with everything else that people are looking at and understanding. Are you looking for a digitalization and net zero partner to help you achieve your goals? Join the thousands of AEC and manufacturing customers globally who have turned to VinZero to start their journey toward a net zero future. With 32 offices around the world, VinZero can connect you to the right technologies and workflow processes so you can maintain your competitive position and increase profitability. VinZero has an industry expert to help you navigate the best pathway forward wherever you are on your digitalization and net zero journey. Visit VinZero.com to find out more. You mentioned before that the world is 7.2% circular. What are the opportunities for benchmarking circularity? Oh, what a question. This is the question of the moment. So I'll focus mainly on the built environment sector because this is an area that myself at the World Green Building Council and, and our team here, we're collaborating a lot with industry partners who we work with on our Circularity Accelerator Global Programme as well as other NGOs and external partners. And we are, we're part of a wider organization called the Circular Buildings Coalition, where we work with a number of other leaders in this space. And we're really trying to tackle this benchmarking and indicators piece, because at the moment, uh, some, some research that colleagues of ours at Circle Economy have put together, they have found that there are about 400 different ways that people are measuring and benchmarking circularity in the built environment. There are so many indicators, which means that people are not comparing apples to apples. They're possibly not even comparing apples to oranges because there are still big question marks, really. And we're not we're not consistent yet as an industry, whether we are measuring circularity as an outcome in itself or whether we're measuring it as a process in the way of moving towards a decarbonized net zero future. So that's some of the technical thinking behind it. But this is an area, as I said, that we're really committed to working on. And over the next couple of years, we want to first of all tackle 
the benchmark and indicators piece. Our colleagues at WBCSD are doing some great work leading that and we're supporting. But we believe as well as having a consistent framework and understanding of what good looks like in circularity in the built environment at an individual measurement level, it's also really important that we have this high-level vision. And for example, with the with the embodied carbon conversation, in 2018, World GBC released a publication called Bringing Embodied Carbon Up Front, where we said to the world, hey, look, we've backcast against Paris Agreement and planetary boundaries, and we can see that in order to get the built environment on track, we need to be reducing embodied carbon in this sector by 40% by 2030 in order for us to be aligned with the trajectory of net zero by 2050. And it's that really communicable target, that quantitative figure of 30% reduction in embodied carbon by 2030, that I think grasps hearts and minds. People understand that. And I think that's one of the reasons why net zero is easy for organizations to target in their corporate benchmarking, in their ESG work. But circularity is still that little bit more vague. And that quantitative target is what we see as the keystone really in the vision piece for circularity in the built environment. Because we know we're exceeding planetary boundaries as a sector, but we don't know quite by how much. And so that piece of figuring out what proportion or what percentage of the of potentially the raw material usage or the waste generation or any of these other metrics, what proportion are we overusing and therefore need to reduce by And that can be our target for the wider industry. That can be our high-level vision that then we can use a more consistent number of benchmarks and more consistent measurement methodologies in order for organizations, in order for countries, in order for potentially individual people to be able to recognize and measure that their own house, their office, their organization, their supply chain is operating in alignment with this vision which we know will keep us in check with planetary boundaries overall. So that is where we're wanting to go with this. It's still a very exciting field, but hopefully we aim to bring some clarity to this conversation. So watch the space. So World Green Building Council are looking to develop a set of metrics potentially that can guide that journey and provide those benchmarks. Yes, in partnership with our colleagues in the Circular Buildings Coalition and particularly our colleagues at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who are supported by Arup and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. This is something that we are supporting them with, with the development of these metrics, as well as the development of this high-level vision. So I hope in about 12 months' time, we will have a little bit more clarity on this space, because there are lots of great minds and organizations working on this topic. Certainly something to look forward to. So what are some of the obstacles or challenges hindering implementation of circularity in the built environment currently? I think one of the biggest challenges with the circular economy is that it's going to look a bit different in every country. And circular economy, as a, as a principle, encompasses four very high-level things. The extension of the use of resources, designing for optimization, keeping products and materials in a, as long a lifespan as possible, and regenerating nature. In different parts of the world, there are going to be different priorities there. So in some parts of the world, for example, your supply chain might be reasonably clean, your grid might be reasonably good. So there'll be a bit less of a focus on tackling embodied carbon, for example, but there might be a higher focus in regenerating nature. 
generally, however, in all in all places of the world, we need to be looking at all of these different elements of circular economy. But the the challenge is, is that there's no one size fits all solution. And the actions are going to be quite different for every stakeholder in the supply chain, whether it's changing the way that you create materials to changing the way you construct buildings to bringing circularity targets into your procurement tenders to ensuring that as a designer, you are designing for disassembly, that the responsibilities for different stakeholders are quite different. So I think that certainly is a challenge that needs to be tackled with awareness raising and education and normalizing these quite complicated concepts. Some of the other challenges which we are starting to see great innovation around, around the infrastructure piece. And I think this is a, a challenge both physically and, and virtually or digitally, if you will. But if we're going to have a a market for secondary materials, if we're going to have a circular economy where if the bridge next door to me no longer uh, is serving a functional purpose, we can extract the steel beams from it and they can be used in the, the tower block that's going up next door. That's the dream. But but where are we going to put all those bits of the bridge in the time that the bridge is no longer being needed, but during the construction process of the, the new community around the corner? And it's one of the very simple pieces that's specifically really challenging for the built environment because the materials are really big. They're really heavy. They're difficult to transport. They take up a lot of space. So the physical infrastructure to create a market for secondary materials is one of the basics that we need to tackle. And that needs to go hand in hand with digital infrastructure so that I know there are high quality steel beams sitting in a reuse lot round the corner from me. If we don't have that information available to the industry, even if you have the best intention and you have successfully disassembled that bridge or that tower, that house, whatever it's going to be, we need to be making the data available for the matchmaking needed to facilitate reuse for this circular economy. A lot of that is going to need political buy-in and support for, and we're seeing this being done really well in places like San Francisco. And we know that California as a state is very advanced in a lot of sustainability regulation. And San Francisco is doing really exciting work in facilitating that reuse of built environment, physical materials. So we look forward to seeing how that work goes and hopefully seeing it being scaled up in other places of the world. The materials piece is also an area that remains difficult for us to to figure out as a sector because we need to be able to ensure that, again, with my bridge, we need to ensure that as my bridge is being disassembled and as I'm building, let's build something nice, a nice a school or something like that, a school or a hospital. We need some steel beams. How are we going to ensure that they are of adequate quality, that they've met safety and structural requirements? Are they the standard that is needed for this new or as new building and certifying, warranting that, and that's essentially being sure that a circular economy doesn't mean a decline in standards and a reduction in safety is essential. It can mean a reduction in emissions, yes, but not a reduction in overall quality. And that's one of the areas that the industry is thinking about. We know it's a challenge, people are working on it. And I think hopefully this will be a conversation that in five years' time we will look to incredible innovation and the use of data and digital platforms in being able to answer this question and overcome this barrier. Some very important considerations. 
How do you envision the response of the built environment towards the concept of circularity overall? I can imagine it's a mixed response because in one way it's difficult. It's new, it's complicated, it's comprehensive. It goes all the way to thinking about regeneration of nature on top of what people already being called for on emissions. So I can envisage in one side the response is going, oh my goodness, what do we need to figure out next? But on the other side, I think that there is a real engagement with the circular economy because it's very tangible and people can really understand the concept of using less stuff, whether you're talking about water, whether you're talking about materials, whether you're talking about preserving biodiversity. It's a very understandable and relatable and visually trackable area of sustainability in a way that the emissions conversation is much harder for people to get to grips with. It's much harder to know if what you're doing is actually saving energy, whether your efficiency measures are actually creating a positive impact on the climate because we can't physically see it. And I mean, it it is certain we're experiencing the impacts within our lifetime, but the impacts are not knock-on. It's not easy for us to be aware of our individual impact in the way that it is easy for us to see whether we've used so much water that we are running out as a community or city or country. So I think we can hopefully expect an engagement with the circular economy as part of the general movement towards sustainability across all sectors. But one of the things that's really going to be critical for the move towards a more circular and sustainable future is that every stakeholder has to be committed and bought in. And I I do think that Comparatively, if I wanted to create a net zero house, if I had innovation, budget, a bit of enthusiasm, I could do that. I could ensure I had as many energy efficient fabric measures in as possible, the cleanest services. I could be creating decarbonized energy on site. I could be offsetting any residual emissions. I could make my house net zero by myself. That's why there are so many fantastic case studies of net zero buildings all around the world in different geographies. But a circular economy, I can't do that by myself. That requires a systemic shift. And unfortunately, the metaphor of the circle is spot on. It is circular. And a circle is not a circle if it's got a gap in it. We do need every single stage of the supply chain to be operating together in order for us to fully close this loop. And I think that's going to be the challenge, but it's also the exciting piece because there's there is going to be a a consistent call on every single stakeholder in the supply chain, and that's pushing for much greater collaboration, much less competition around sustainability, data sharing, and a commitment to fostering innovation within this sector and, and so many more. So I hope that despite the difficulties, the response will be generally positive and build momentum in the years to come. How are we going to define success when it comes to circularity? There's lots of ways to answer this question, but I'm going to keep it simple. Success is that we are living in accordance with planetary boundaries. We're living aligned with the ecosystem services that operate on planet Earth. That's going to look like reduced emissions, reduced waste, allowing our resources to regenerate naturally and not overexploiting them. It also means, though, that we have to have a thriving economic system where everybody wins, and by everybody I'm including the planet. So a circular economy being successfully implemented, that looks like a just transition. It looks like people being efficient with their water use, their energy use, their materials consumption. 
And ultimately, yes, the ultimate metric is that we're living aligned with planetary boundaries. And as we said at the beginning, that at the moment, the circularity rating of the world is 7.2%. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were looking at 72, 92, 100? That's the goal. So how does the race for a circular build environment compare in importance to the race towards net zero? This is a great question because I think there is a feeling in the sector at the moment that people need to choose. And I hear language where people are saying, oh, no, we're not focused on circularity, we're focused on emissions or vice versa. But these are ultimately the same conversation. Circularity, net zero and the social sustainability area, these are all part of sustainability. But in particular, a circular economy is absolutely key to reducing embodied carbon emissions. It goes hand in hand with the race towards net zero. So although circularity does bring in wider areas, yes, I've talked a lot about nature, about ecosystems, water, but that goes hand in hand again with the race to net zero because regenerating nature is the ultimate climate change mitigation and resilience tool. So it really isn't choosing between one or another, but in terms of overall reducing the emissions that we are releasing into the atmosphere, if we were to decarbonize all the energy systems tomorrow, if all of our grids were going to be clean tomorrow, that would only tackle 55% of global greenhouse gas emissions. The other 45% comes from how we consume products and materials and resources. So these conversations really do collectively need to be tackled together and I hope as a sector we can move away from this this choosing of races, this choosing of lanes where you're choosing either net zero or circularity or social, and we move towards this increased recognition that actually working on one means working on them all, and a sustainable future involves a circular and net zero and socially beneficial future. Is there a role for policy or regulation or procurement to play in the race for circularity? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a huge need for policy to be able to overcome some of the challenges with circular economy that we've talked about before. We do need regulation to be able to mobilise things like the market for secondary materials, to be able to support greater proportions of reused or recycled contents of materials, or to be able to authorise the use of new innovative bio-based materials we were talking about. So we do need regulation at a local level to be able to facilitate the transition away from really high emitting traditional ways of manufacturing and construction to facilitate this move towards a more sustainable future. But we also need big demand side movers and that's where procurement's a huge opportunity. And we are seeing leadership in cities like San Francisco, but looking at Australia as well, the Arden Precinct in Australia has a circularity strategy and that's incredible to see from local authority leadership. And Bringing circularity in not just at an asset level, but at a community level, that's where we've got the opportunity for for bigger wins. And it's going to be very difficult for us to create a closed loop system if everybody's trying to close their own individual loops. But having policy direction towards government or local government circularity initiatives, it gives us that opportunity of, of scale, really. And that allows us to bring together the demand and supply side of circularity. How can we match make, as we said, where somebody's materials are waste, but somebody needs those materials? That's difficult to do at an individual level, but it's exciting and opportunistic to do at a larger level. 
So there are some who think that the whole system's approach to sustainable development is more strategic approach for the long term. What does taking a whole system's approach actually mean when it comes to circularity? Well, I would be one of those people who agree that taking a whole systems approach to sustainable development is not only the most strategic, but it's the only way forwards. But for the built environment, I think this means, first of all, the scope of sustainability, but also the full scope of built environment. And as we've talked a bit about the evolution of sustainability, yes, it's evolved in terms of topic, but it's also evolved in terms of scale. And to be operating in a sustainable system involves looking not just at your own footprint. Our circularity and broader sustainability measures, they need to be brought in at building level, of course, but also at community level, at infrastructure level, at supply chain level. For example, if I have a net zero home, that's fantastic, but if I can only get to it by driving, that's not fantastic. If I'm releasing emissions in the transport or in the utilities or the other services that my building needs, that is, that's actively offsetting in a negative way the environmental benefits of this positive asset. So a systemic approach in the built environment needs to involve looking at the wider life cycle, the full supply chain, and a broader geographical lens, looking at communities, cities, and the infrastructure that ex- exists between the buildings as well. But Also, the full scope of sustainability, as we've touched on before, that we should be looking at climate action, at mitigation, but also adaptation and resilience. We should be looking at resources. We should be looking at how we maintain them through a circular economy, regenerate them and restore biodiversity. As well as the social piece, we need to be ensuring that we're protecting health, indoor environmental quality. It remains top of mind for many of us around the world even as we're living in the post-pandemic era. But that also has raised questions around social equity and value and justice in the built environment is where these issues are faced. It's where we live. And I feel a lot that we need to be really careful not to be pitting one area of sustainability against another one. It's creating confusion with the sector. It's even potentially creating competition or conflict. But these are all sub-themes of this broader target of people and planet living harmoniously and healthily together. So a whole systems approach to me means taking this full suite of sustainability scope and applying it to the full geographic scale of the built environment. So taking the conversation a little broader again, circularity as we've explored is effective to a degree and addresses waste for current resource consumption habit and processes, but it's not necessarily strategic for making manufacturing processes and resource input more effective upstream. So if we look at water as a resource in nature conservation, that's also hugely important to the built environment because it's used in every process. So how do we start to address something like water? Well, that is a very timely question. I'm glad you've asked that. And it's something we've had a lot of conversations with the team at Venzero about in the last few weeks and months. The conversation about water is absolutely top of mind for us right now because we, we're really recognising that this sector has a real blind spot when it comes to water. And for me personally, I had a bit of a light bulb moment about this at COP27 last year. We were inside these air-conditioned tents in Sharm el-Sheikh, in the middle of the Egyptian desert. It was absolutely boiling outside, but yet we had run out of water within the tents. 
And it was this real moment of realizing this is what the future could look like. This is a future in which we are relying so much on mechanical systems for comfort, but we have overexploited our our basic planetary supplies of an absolutely vital service. And one of the biggest concerns for me was how little water was being talked about in the built environment industry. And that's something that we are trying to tackle this calendar year, actually, in the run-up to COP28. Because as a sector, the built environment is using an unbelievable quantity of water and at every single stage of the supply chain, as you were saying. We're all aware of the water that we're using in our homes. We're aware of how we use it operationally. We need it for drinking, for cooking, for showering, for sanitation, for all of these purposes. But I think we forget as well the water that goes into the very fabric of the buildings that we sit in. The water that's used for manufacturing of materials, for construction, for wider infrastructure generally. And also the embodied emissions of water, the carbon footprint of the water that comes out of all of our sinks is the is the area that I think there's not a lot of awareness about, particularly as we move to a future where we need to rely more on desalination as a way of creating potable water and over-extraction of groundwater is becoming an increasing environmental problem. We need to be aware that turning on the tap comes with a carbon emissions cost as well as a water utilisation cost. And the built environment, again, has this huge opportunity to help to reduce the amount of water that we use Overall, it's the sector where we are using water at every stage of the supply chain, but awareness is so small. So we are going to be producing a short publication to release at COP28, a spotlight piece, if you will, that we hope will bring this conversation to the attention of policymakers, regulators, and all the decision makers who will be there on the ground in Dubai later this year. And we hope to catalyze a bit more momentum so water stops becoming the blind spot in the sustainability conversation. So there's been a lot to talk about there, Katrina, but as we end our conversation today, can I ask you, when you think about the work World Green Building Council are undertaking, what is it that excites you the most? Well, I am extremely excited about where we're going with the Circularity Accelerator program. I'm extremely excited about the impact that we've made so far with the Built Environment Playbook and how it continues to be disseminated around the world and bring information and accessibility of these concepts to people around the world. So I hope that keeps growing. I'm super excited and we're going to keep pushing it. The water conversation is something that I really think we should be seeing momentum on. I'm excited to be picking that up. The vision piece that I mentioned that we're looking to go to next, that I see is really the keystone of the high-level narrative on circularity, that we need this to take this conversation to another level and encourage mass market reporting and engagement with sustainability on an ESG level for for mainstream organizations. But I think the thing that excites me generally about the circular economy as an area of sustainability is that it is that layer more tangible and understandable and engaging for people. And I really hope that within our lifetimes, ideally much sooner, but we start to see a real revolution in the way that people are consuming materials. And we're already seeing it, actually, with things like the plastic revolution, as we saw the the incredible momentum put in place by the work of David Attenborough, of course, and some incredibly powerful imagery. 
It takes a trigger moment like that for people to realize the impact that our day-to-day behaviors are having. And I think the plastic sensation that was created and the the knock-on effect, the way that we are no longer using plastic bags, plastic cups are a thing of the past, plastic straws, we never see them anymore either. That's happened within a really short space of time. And I feel optimistic that people can engage with with water use, with raw material use, with ecosystems, with waste in that same way that we have with plastics because it's visual, it's understandable in a way that people find a little bit more difficult with emissions. And although we are walking towards a dangerous future where it looks like we are surpassing 1.5 degrees in the coming years, I hope that a circular economy is part of our wider decarbonization efforts where we can then bounce back and ultimately for generations to come get our planet back into a place that we're aligned with planetary boundaries and we're living in a more sustainable and healthy and fortunate way for for everybody to come. Well, Katrina, it's certainly great to have World Green Building Council drive the conversations across the sector and surface these important issues. And certainly the work you're doing in leading the collaboration for a revolution is going a long way towards creating a brighter future for the built environment and for the whole of the planet. So we thank you for your work to date and we look forward to keeping abreast of all the great achievements coming our way. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and thank you for having me. This podcast was brought to you by VinZero. VinZero helped the AEC and manufacturing industries keep pace with digital change and achieve their technological and sustainability leadership goals. VinZero is a company that cares about creating and building a better world. Together, we are working with industry and environmental experts, providing forums and platforms through our VinZero Think community to create conversations that matter to our future generations. We invite you to join in the conversation and participate in our Think community. Like and subscribe to Think Future to stay up to date with the latest innovations and conversations as we take AEC and manufacturing around the world closer to zero. You can download our podcasts at vinzero.com or from your favourite podcast platform. From Vinzero Think Future, thanks for listening.